Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 482nd show of ROI. Our noted guest for today's show is Dr. Kachin Gainty, historian of health and healthcare at King's College London, England, and co-founder of the Healthy Skepticism Project. And we're going to talk about reversing death, the weird history of resuscitation. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Ed Broders and Rick Sweet. To begin with, we'd like to welcome our guests to the show, Dr. Kachin Gainty. Welcome to the show, Kachin. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. We call the first segment of the show Fadruk Denauren, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information of what resuscitation means, and how long have people been trying to do it? Well, resuscitation, I think probably most people are familiar with CPR, the training that you get sort of uh, as part of first aid training. Um, and resuscitation is really about the chest compressions, or at least this is how we think about it now, the chest compressions and sometimes the rescue breathing that we do in order to bring somebody who is not breathing and whose heart has stopped or is fibrillating back to life. Um, resuscitation has been going on. I mean, some people trace it all the way back sort of to the ancient world. Um, but we know it's really been sort of a big piece of history since the 18th century. So the, the 1780s um, is a big moment for resuscitation. And part of the reason for that is that this is also the period of the Industrial Revolution. So there are lots more um, open canals, open rivers that are being used for all sorts of, you know, carrying all sorts of goods all, all around the world. Um, and people are falling into these rivers and these canals much more often than they might have otherwise, because, of course, they're working on the docks. Um, but resuscitation at this moment looks quite a, quite a bit different than the resuscitation that we know now. So one of the ideas of resuscitating someone really is that you need to kind of excite the organs um, or excite the, uh, the, the kind of breathing of, of a person. So they... They would, you know, pull people out of the river. They would turn them upside down and hit them, hit them on the, hit them on the back, hit them on the chest to try to get water out, uh, but also to excite the body to breathe again. They would force whiskey down their throats as something that would excite the digestive system. They would, you know, put a, a bellows so that they could um, kind of blow smoke up through the body. Um, and excite the colon. That was one of the one of the very big ones. Um, and there are all of these different kinds of ways of doing it. And and in some cases, or at least these are the reports we have, they were quite successful. And so over time, resuscitation went from being something that's specifically about drowning, really, and the appearance of dead. So they make a distinction between the apparently dead and the really dead. Um, and it becomes more and more about uh, new technologies of electrification. So people are getting electrocuted, and that's something we can bring people back um, with with rescue breathing and sort of pounding on their chest and things like that. Um, and also uh, carbon monoxide poisoning once there are cars around. So all of those things really drive forward different techniques in resuscitation until we get to the 20th century. And at that point, Really, um, and, and all the while, this is something that we all do for everybody else. So you see someone drown, pull them out, shove some whiskey down in their throat, or you pound on them a bit, 
and that hopefully brings them back to life. Um, but in the 20th century, in the mid-20th century especially, um, with the advent of open chest surgery, uh, it becomes more and more in the purview of medical practitioners and surgeons to worry about resuscitation because, of course, they're watching, in some cases, watching a heart just suddenly stop while they're on the operating table and they um, can't very well just, you know, call out for um, the emergency people or other people to come and sort of try to force the air into them to get that heart breathing again. So they start to adopt their own versions of uh, resuscitation over this period and that leads eventually to the um, resuscitation methods that we're more familiar with today which are really focused not on kind of exciting the body and all its organs, but focused quite directly on the heart. So, uh, you know, chest compressions um, and kind of pushing the heart to come back to life um, and understanding that as the thing that needs to happen in order for breathing to be restored and for the apparently dead to come back to life. Um, so that's sort of, in a nutshell, how it goes. I mean, there's a really interesting statistics in the mid-20th century, which suggests that, you know, something like 70% of the population can be resuscitated successfully, either in the hospital or outside of it with these methods. Um, but we now know that that is really an overstatement. And one of the things that um, one of my colleagues at the University of Chicago, or used to be at the University of Chicago, Dan Bronner, always used to talk about is that, you know, there's this kind of, um, these kind of, you know, this, this, this Surgeon Claude Beck introduces these different uh, variants of, of how dead somebody is that correspond to um, how likely they are to be able to be resuscitated. And so my colleague, Dr. Bronner, um, and also um, my colleague, Jeff Reese, and I together started thinking about, well, you know, cardiac arrest is actually something that we can only dream up as a result of resuscitation um, and that this then becomes seems like it's a really essential part of what medical pra practitioners do rather than something that we all do sort of um, in an emergency sort of situation um, and that really the efficacy of uh, resuscitation is really all about what's happened to a person so if you've drowned you've been electrocuted or you have carbon monoxide or other kind of poisoning there's a ch good chance resuscitation will work but if it's something that's organic with your heart, um, then the, the hope is that resuscitation, these resuscitation techniques will last long enough for people, for medical practitioners to come and take over and do what needs to be done to, to kind of, you know, more dramatically um, solve whatever the problem actually is. Um, so we've come a long way from thinking that this can save 70% of the people um, and also from Claudex. Um, you know, this, this really interesting surgeon who thought, um, who thought about, you know, death as, you know, 100% dead, 50% dead, almost dead, apparently dead, like all these sort of different versions of death um, have now come back to kind of the, uh, the kind of more basic sense that, um, you know, there are some pathologies that, you know, resuscitation is not going to solve. Um, and that really what, what we're talking about are, ought to be put in terms of sort of diagnostic categories rather than in terms of how dead you might appear or you might be based on resuscitation only. And I suppose the final thing I'll just add is that um, one of the things that's really interesting about resuscitation is how democratic 
uh, it was. You know, it was something that really put medicine out into the public for everybody to be able to do. And that's not surprising um, in the 17th or the 18th and 19th centuries when when medical practitioners aren't really specialized in the way they are now. Um, but it's more surprising in the 20th century. And there you see a kind of push and pull between different constituent groups about who it is that's allowed to do resuscitation. So Claude Beck, this, this really interesting surgeon, um, at one point sort of puts forward the idea that, that really the most effective way of doing resuscitation is to whip open a chest and massage the heart. And so he suggests that really everybody should be equipped with a scalpel so that they can come running, you know, when you fall over <laughs> and whip open your chest and massage your heart. Um, uh, that and, could be quite know, catastrophic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As you might expect, that, that didn't go over so no. well. No. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. If you are wondering how to find out where locals love to go, there's a website called localsloveus.com. Or you can pick up a Locals Love Us guide around town as well. Localsloveus.com. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Kachin Gainty, historian of health and healthcare at King's College London, England, and co-founder of the Healthy Skepticism Project. And we'll be talking about reversing death, the weird history of resuscitation, our history buster today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. And before I give Rick the question, I have to ask you a comical question myself, Dr. Gainty. So uh, Rick and I both like whiskey, and if we're in our chair and we're drinking it and our wives tell them to stop, we can say we're doing resuscitation by Absolutely. 70%. So, I mean, is this something? And it's an, I know it's an 18th century argument, but could it still be used? Well, I think if it flies, then you should go for it. Thank Absolutely. You. Okay. I mean, that's I, I, I will take, take a word. The doctor said I Oh, yeah, the do doctor. That. Honey, did you listen to the show? <laughs> eight, eight, 482, we have proof. Floor is yours, Rick. <laughs> Cajun, uh, I read the article. Uh, very interesting. And I was, uh, among other things, you know, the, the uh, injection of smoke through one's anal passage. Oof. Uh, sla uh -huh. yeah. slapping and beating and at what point did the scientists we'll call them because some doctors were not really scientists at what point did scientists finally realize that compressing the the chest uh, particularly on drowning to get water out of the lungs and the, the passage that you didn't have to put smoke up one's rectal orifice or you didn't have to slap them silly. What, at what point did they finally realize the technique that we're using today? Well, that was really in the 20th century. And, and at the beginning of the 20th century, with the 1910s and 20s, you still see a lot of variation in the kinds of techniques that um, people are putting forward for resuscitation. But this is still not, even in this in this uh, early part of the 20th century, still not the purview, really, of medical practitioners. It's still kind of 
um, firefighters and like, you know, kind of emergency services like that, that are really putting these um, resuscitative efforts into play. And I think one of the things that you see through the history of resuscitation is actually how late it is that um, medicine becomes sort of the consolidated, you know, kind of, you know, the familiar thing that we all recognize today. Um, there's a great line, again, from, from my favorite, Claude Beck, who talks about the fact that, you know, in surgery, they, the practice was in the 1910s and 20s still to call the emergency services who would arrive with, like, their various, you know, paraphernalia to resuscitate somebody. And he, he was sort of like, why are we doing this? You know, this makes no sense. We need to have our own techniques. And so it's really only in the 30s, 40s, and then into the 50s where um, they start to kind of really develop the CPR techniques that, that are familiar to us today. And I think, like, what's really interesting to me is that these notions of, you know, so that early 20th century techniques, they aren't, you know, blowing smoke up the ass, which I, I, I'm not, and I, I love don't know that. if I can say that, that, but I've said it, I've said it now. So is that where the term um, came from? Is that where this? Precisely, <laughs> precisely. <laughs> All right, Must let's get to really, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, so it's, they're not doing that anymore in the early 20th century, but they still aren't doing what we expect. They're doing something where they kind of turn you over. One of the techniques is they turn you over, they kind of push on your back, especially for drowning, to get the water to come out. Um, but they are doing breathing. They start doing rescue breathing, or what we now have called rescue breathing. Um, and they, they do understand, at the very least, for those particular kinds of things, that you need to get the water out. And one of the ways of doing that is to do these kinds of pressure techniques. Um, and then slowly over time, by the 50s, they're really thinking quite specifically about the heart and about chest compression. So that's, in, in that era, we get sort of our, our, our late, you know, the, the, the techniques that we're familiar with today. Okay. Ed. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, Kajan, and at this point in time, we all understand resuscitation is about perhaps um, restoring life or saving a life. Um, but if we go back to the 18th century and even a little before that, uh, somewhere in the mix of the roots of this practice, um, is there the idea of, you know, kind of doing something instead of nothing is better than standing and watching? I mean, that's such a great question. I'm sure that's that partly to do with it. Um, I think that there is always, I mean, this is something that becomes more and more a part of medicine over time, this idea that you need to do something. And indeed, um, in the history of sort of uh, pharmaceuticals, um, up until the 20th century, there is this expectation that even doctors will give you something um, rather than giving you nothing at all, whether or not the thing they give you is actually helpful. So that by the 20th century, doctors are saying, well, we can't continue with the pills and powders of the earlier period. We've got to now be transparent with the public and you know, actually show them what we can do. Um, so I'm sure that that must be a part of it all the way along, this kind of sense that, well, you know, how do how are we going to solve this problem? We can't just let this person drown. You know, what can we what can we do to to save them? But I do think you know, there's some real kind of um, it's in, in some ways, if you lived in the 18th century, um, this would be very practical. You know, the idea that 
someone's drowned. So what are the things that you need to do? Well, looking at a human body, you need to get the water out. So we all know, like, you swallow water the wrong way. It doesn't feel good. So that's maybe sort of intuitive, you know, kind of banging at somebody to get them to start breathing again. Um, and I think it also kind of shows the, the very different logic of medicine in this earlier period, where the idea is that if you can excite the organs, then you can excite them back into activity again. Um, and some of this has to do, again, with kind of the influence of industrialization over that period where, um, you know, people start to think of the human body in the same way that they might think of a machine. So sort of, you know, if your machine stops working, um, maybe give it a bang and see if it's going to, you know, start up again. Um, and I think there's sort of a, a, a similar sort of logic at play. Um, and I think it's really important, you know, as a historian, this is really important to me to kind of recognize that um, all of these in their own time are really sort of consistent with the way people understood how bodies function and how they work um, and that they look crazy and ridiculous to us, you know, as we look back. But in some ways, you know, in some ways you could say um, they, they, you know, they are according to the standards of our day. But then you could also say, well, in, you know, 100 years, you know, are people going to look back and think that our view of, of how we do resuscitation is is crazy? Um, and I think, you know, we generally feel like, well, you know, that's not going to happen because what we're doing is, is so reasonable and logical. But, you know, people in the 18th century would have said the same thing, that there's a real logic to the kind of things that they were doing in order to bring people back, back to life. Um, and also, you know, they had successes. I mean, there's, there's, well, if, if, if you can believe the newspapers, um, there's success after success. Um, so, you know, whatever they're doing, they're doing something that seems to, to work. And that in and of itself really, you know, gives you the, um, gives the impetus to, to keep doing it, to keep doing those practices. Um, and then slowly over time, of course, they change to kind of fit each sort of cultural moment. But that's very typical for how medicine operates, I think. And, and uh, you know, our current logic is based in science. Their logic was based in sort of, you know, in the way that, um, in the way that machines function and, and the body as potentially also a machine. All right. Um, so a question to go a little further, since we're talking 18th, 19th, and, excuse me, 20th century, um, did the practices and procedures change along with the advancements of medicine? I mean, um, I read an article years ago about how revolutionary the x-ray was, that you could actually look into a body and see bones without cutting it open. And you had doctors back then that, because they didn't really know what they were getting into, because there really wasn't still known a lot about how our innards work, uh, that were skeptical. And then, of course, with the 19th and 20th century, when medical advances just just storm, uh, does the uh, practices of resuscitation follow along these same patterns? Or like they, are they leading the way or are they being carried along? I would say they, I mean, I think what's interesting about, um, you know, x-rays I think are a really great example because they start out as this thing that nobody's quite sure what it's actually showing. You know, like how do you read an x-ray? How do you understand the geography of the interior of someone's body based on this image that really, um, you know, is not like an exact, you know, it's not an exact replica of what's happening. It's just a representation. Um, and so you have to learn how to read those things. And I think, those kinds of moments are, um, you know, become really revolutionary only after, 
you learn how to read them, how to handle x-rays, how to deal with them. Um, but I think resuscitation is a bit different because it already was tied so closely n- not to medical practitioners, but to, um, you know, industrial workers, you know, uh, helping each other. And then later on to um, uh, to kind of uh, this, this notion of the emergency as separate from medical practice more generally, um, so that the trajectory here is is not quite the same as some of these other things where we get these kind of, you know, radical new developments and they drive all sorts of change from there. Um, instead, it's, it's a kind of, um, here's a kind of pre-existing um, tradition among people more generally that we all, you know, that we all have this sort of sense that we can do for each other um, and how does that then become something that is, is a part of, of medicine? Where does it fit within medicine? Um, and so in that sense, it's, it's, kind, it's slightly different from, from this other way of understanding medical progress um, and instead really brings out the way in which the kind of shifts in medicine are more contingent and sort of more unexpected and unacceptable than, than we normally think. So in the case of resuscitation, um, it becomes uh, something that is within the purview of medical practitioners because of surgery. So certainly surgery is one of these big new radical developments, and especially open chest surgery is one of these really big developments of the 20th century, um, even though surgery itself is around for much longer, of course. Um, but uh, the, the idea that, you know, in surgery you need to solve a problem um, the problem of a stopped heart. Uh, I think that really is the moment in which medical practitioners start to kind of be driven forward with this notion that, okay, now we need to solve a very particular medical problem. Can we adapt some of what is happening in resuscitation already sort of as part of emergency services? Um, and what can we add to it? And indeed what they add to it is defibrillation, um, the, the kind of the, the, uh, the great um, kind of technology of resuscitation has to be the defibrillator because the defibrillator allows for um, people in surgery to kind of, you know, to, to, to have their hearts restarted, but also then become something that you can use outside of that context um, and restart a heart, you know, a defibrillator. I don't, you know, I don't know how it is in the States now, but around us there's defibrillators everywhere that you can access, pull out, and restart somebody's heart if you know what you're doing. So I would say if there is kind of a medical development that drives resuscitation and makes it medical, it's probably the advent of open chest surgery. Um, And then after that, the development of these technologies around defibrillation, which then in turn um, move out of just sort of the medical purview and then are re-democratized as part of the um, the tech the technique of of uh, resuscitation more generally. Okay, we have uh, four minutes left, and we're gonna have Rick ask a quick question, and then we're gonna give you the final say. I have one uh, quick one. It's kind of a segue. Uh, you are a co-founder at King's College of the Healthy Skepticism Project. What in the world is the Healthy <laughs> Skepticism Project? Our radio show will back it. Yes. <laughs> That's great. Well, I think one of the um, one part of the Healthy Skepticism Project is actually 
bringing to health and healthcare a kind of healthy skepticism so that we, um, the way that we consume news about medicine and about health um, is done with, you know, a grain of salt. Not to say that we shouldn't believe these things, but that there is something really important. And this is indeed, you know, how knowledge develops um, to ask questions and to kind of push beyond, um, you know, what we're told in a general way to find out more um, to create our own sort of understanding of it, et cetera. But the other piece of it is really about listening to skeptics or critics or antagonists or even the dispossessed of medicine to find out where what their views are and where those views differ or what those views have to tell us about maybe what we're doing wrong in medicine. Um, so I think, I mean, this was sort of, uh, you know, we've, We've talked about this in terms of um, anti-vaccination movements and in terms of um, the past sort of uh, moments, sort of anti-science kind of sentiment. And the goal is not, of course, to just get a, a, give a platform to, to any random person who wants to rant about medicine, but instead to look at these and take them seriously and say, OK, so what is it here that we can understand from these critiques? that either is not being communicated properly to people so that they don't understand it, or that really is a legitimate critique of medicine that we've overlooked and pushed past because it doesn't suit the way that we understand medicine in the mainstream. And so one of my favorite examples of this really are the medical skeptics of the 1970s who say all sorts of really fascinating things about what medicine does wrong, um, and we tended to kind of ignore them or sort of push beyond them and say they were just part of this radical movement. But in many ways, a lot of the kinds of things that they're saying really still ring true in terms of representation within medicine, in terms of um, how we allocate healthcare services, also in terms of really basic things like how effective medicine actually is. Um, you know, there are in 2000, in the early 2000s, a pharmaceutical company rep um, came out and said, actually, you know, our 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 medications are not as effective as we think they are, and this is sort of medicine's dirty little secret. Um, but here's the repair for this. We're gonna kind of, um, you know, we're gonna make them all now, you know, extremely effective using um, the it was part of the Human Genome Project. So thinking in terms of that. Um, and so there are little things like that that really, you know, nuance and, and really help us to understand um, medicine better without taking away, um, you know, and, and perhaps even building up the, uh, the good parts of medicine, the stuff that really does work, um, that it allows us a position from which to say, okay, so if this doesn't work, why doesn't it work and what can we do about it? And for us as, uh, as, as, a, as a population... Um, to come together and sort of ask those questions, not in order to, you know, just rant against healthcare, but instead in order to make healthcare always better. So it's a very okay. kind of fine line that we're treading here. And, you know, we started the project just before the pandemic hit. And then, you know, there are all sorts of anti-vax, anti, you know, anti, or, you know, COVID is a hoax kinds of things that we had to very and, quickly steer clear of. Okay, and, and we will definitely, we're going to talk more about that in the podcast v- version of the show. We will come back and wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI at KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 482nd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our noted guest, Dr. Kachin Gainty, historian of health and health care at King's College London, England, and co-founder of the Healthy Skepticism Project, who talked to us today about reversing death, the weird history of resuscitation. The history bus for today's show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>